verse 28 to 40. Then the Jews led Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, the Jews did not enter the palace. They wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, What charges are you bringing against this man? If we were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, the Jews objected. This happened so that the words Jesus had spoken, indicating the kind of death he was going to die, would be fulfilled. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea? Jesus asked. Or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. It was your people and your chief priests who handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, You are right in saying I am a king. In fact, for this reason I was born, and for this I came into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? Pilate asked. With this he went outside again to the Jews and said, I find no basis for a charge against him, but it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, No, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas has taken part in a rebellion. This is the word of God. Thank you, Seb. <clears throat> let's, uh, let's pray. Well, Heavenly Father, we do pray that in these minutes that your word would be our rule and guide, your Holy Spirit, our teacher, and your glory, our supreme concern. And we ask these things for Christ's sake. Amen. Good. Well, if you've got your Bible open in front of you, and I hope you have, um, our text this morning, our key text is verse 37. Can you see verse 37? Uh, Jesus here is talking to a man called Pontius Pilate. And uh, in verse 37, Jesus explains more clearly, I think, than anywhere else, why he has come. <clears throat> so let me read from the middle of verse 37 again. Jesus says, middle of verse 37, For this reason I was born, and for this I came into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone 
on the side of truth listens to me. Well, that is a very bold claim, isn't it? But it is one that our generation badly needs to hear. Because I think that when the history of our generation is written, the experts will say that the collapse of truth has been the most distinctive and certainly the most damaging feature of the past 50 years. I mean, two or three generations ago, it was unthinkable that there would be a serious public debate about the morality of assisted suicide or the nature and definition of marriage or the ethics of killing a baby in the process of delivery. You see, these were issues on which the public had already made up its mind on an accepted standard of truth, a respected benchmark of right and wrong. But today, of course, these issues have moved beyond mere discussion. So euthanasia is already being practiced, isn't it, in certain countries. Uh, gay marriage is on the statute books. And abortions are everywhere on the increase. So we have to agree, don't we, that from a Christian perspective, we're living in an age that calls evil good and good evil. We're living at a time when sin is celebrated as freedom and when righteousness is routinely ridiculed. So there's never been a more urgent need for Christians to proclaim the truth to a world that is progressively destroying itself without it. But what is the truth we're to proclaim and what kind of response can we expect when we do? Well, that actually is the issue before us in our passage this morning. So as we come to the text, the first thing I want us to notice is that on the one hand, human beings are conspiring against God just as they are doing today. And on the other hand, John shows us that their conspiracy is utterly futile. So our first heading this morning is a futile conspiracy, verses 28 to 32, a futile conspiracy. Now, in our series, uh, we've arrived at the chapters in John's Gospel that deal with the suffering and death of Jesus. And uh, Christians sometimes refer to this as his passion. And uh, we've already seen in our series that John is a genius because he's able to write about the same event from two different points of view at the same time. So he's able to show us that what looks like the triumph of evil over good isn't actually that at all. And it means that in these chapters, uh, we must look at both sides of the story very carefully indeed. So a fortnight ago, uh, we saw, didn't we, that uh, when his enemies came to arrest him, 
Jesus offered no resistance. Uh, We saw that he had the power to resist. Uh, He could have wiped them all out on the spot, but he didn't. And at first sight, that was a bit of a surprise. It seemed as if everything Jesus had been working for was all coming to nothing. But actually, that wasn't the case, because do you remember Jesus explained that he was absolutely determined to drink the cup of God's wrath on behalf of you and me. In other words, Jesus himself said that he was carrying out God's purposes through human wickedness. So not in spite of it, uh, he wasn't overwhelmed by it, he wasn't diverted by it, it was all under his control. Now in our passage this morning, we've got the same pattern. Uh, The Jewish religious leaders bring Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor Pontius Pilate. And immediately we get a detailed picture, a graphic picture, of what these religious leaders were really like. So in verse 28, we're told that in order to avoid ceremonial uncleanness so they could eat the Passover, they didn't enter the palace because it was at the home of a Gentile. Now just think about that for a moment. It is deeply ironic Remember that the Passover was a religious festival that was all about escaping the judgment of God. And these religious men want to escape God's judgment by observing the Passover, okay? But at the same time, they're perfectly happy to kill an innocent man. And the irony, of course, is that by killing Jesus, who is the true Passover lamb, By showing themselves to be the enemies of Jesus, they're actually cutting themselves off, aren't they, from the mercy and forgiveness of God. And therefore, they will have to face the full force of God's righteous anger, the very thing they most wanted to avoid. To us, it seems, I think, almost beyond belief that these educated religious people could be so utterly foolish. And yet, of course, the same tragedy is with us today wherever men and women use religion as a cover for ungodly behavior. Perhaps today it's most glaringly obvious in those denominations where men and women are overturning what God says in his word about marriage on the assumption that God will smile on their efforts because of their status as religious leaders. In other words, they're claiming an authority to call something good, which God explicitly labels as evil. Now that is actually no different to the situation in John 18. The religious leaders bring Jesus to the Roman governor, He's the ultimate legal authority in the land, if you like. He's head of the Supreme Court. But it's immediately clear that these religious men aren't remotely interested in giving Jesus a fair trial. Verse 29, Pilate asks the obvious question that any well-trained lawyer would ask. What charges are you bringing against this man? 
And I want you to notice that their reply is just oozing with prejudice. Because in verse 30 they say, if he were not a criminal, we wouldn't have handed him over to you. Now, think about that. There hasn't been a formal trial, but these religious men have already reached their verdict. Jesus is a criminal. But that's not all. I think perhaps Pilate senses that he's being used, and so he attempts to try to get them to try the case themselves. And when he does, the religious authorities reveal their true colors. Verse 31, they say... We have no right to execute anyone. So, not only have they reached a verdict, Jesus is a criminal, but they've decided the sentence as well. And at this point, we might think that the conspiracy against Jesus is succeeding, that they're winning. But then John, very wonderfully, slips in one of his little editorial comments to make sure that you and I have got the true picture clear in our minds. And you'll find that in verse 32. John writes, This happened so that the words Jesus had spoken, indicating the kind of death he was going to die, would be fulfilled. What John is saying is, or he's reminding us, Jesus knew this was precisely what was going to happen. And... He knew that it was going to happen this way. So it might look like defeat, but actually it isn't. Just to make the point crystal clear, please turn in your Bible to Acts chapter 2. We did look at this text a bit earlier in our prayer before the service, but let's look at it again. Acts chapter 2 from verse 22. This is the famous Pentecost sermon preached by Peter. And he's looking back on the events that uh, we're reading about in John 18. But at the time, of course, at the time of the events in John 18, Peter had no idea what was going on. But listen now to his understanding. Just a few weeks later, Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Peter says, Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man, now listen to this carefully, this man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Now pause on that. So can you see that when Jesus was nailed to the cross, God was totally in control? But the question is, how do we know that this was victory rather than defeat? Verse 24, but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him, because of course he was sinless. Now, what did that mean? Verse 36, look down to verse 36. Peter says, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, 
both Lord and Christ. Now you see, folks, the point is this, that in every age, man in his wickedness does his absolute best to conspire against the purposes of Almighty God. But in the end, the conspiracy is always futile, as it is here. God's will always prevails. So, come back to John 18, because with that in our minds, we need to move on from the futile conspiracy and notice, secondly, the personal challenge in the story, verses 33 to 38. Now, the exchange in these verses between Jesus and Pilate is unique to John's Gospel. Uh, you won't find it in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Now, as there were no other witnesses present at the time, it is almost certain that this material was given to John by Jesus after he rose from the dead. Now that's quite a thought, isn't it? And for that reason alone, we need to think very carefully about it. What was it that Jesus wanted us to know? Well, in this interview, Jesus says he's a king and he has a kingdom. And it's not like any other kingdom that Pilate had ever heard about before. Jesus says two things about it. First, in verse 36, Jesus says, My kingdom is not of this world. Now, I want to say to us this morning that that's important because it contradicts a version of Christianity that is spreading steadily through Africa today. Because in some circles, there is a view that says that the kingdom of God is found wherever there is peace, wherever people are being liberated from political oppression, wherever the hungry are being fed, and wherever the well-being of humanity is being advanced. Now, no doubt, those things are the result of God doing some wonderful things through certain people. But friends, that is a very, very strange version of Christ's kingdom. And it doesn't actually fit with the picture we're given in the rest of the New Testament. Because elsewhere, the Lord Jesus says that until he comes back, what we ought to expect to see are wars and rumors of wars. He says that until he comes back, injustice and terror will continue to thrive. In fact, the increase of wickedness in the world will be so great that it will cause the love of some Christians to grow cold. And if you doubt me on that, you can look it up later in Matthew 24, verse 6 and following. So it's not a pretty picture. But of course, if you think about it, it is a painfully accurate description of the history of the world in the last 2,000 years. And of course, it's the situation, isn't it, that we see everywhere today. So in verse 36, Jesus puts the record straight and he reminds us that his kingdom is not of this world. It's from another place. That means it's not here yet. 
We can secure our place in it today and would be extremely foolish not to do that. But you see, Christians are going to continue to pray, your kingdom come until the day the Lord Jesus returns. So that's the first thing we learn about his kingdom. It is not here yet. Second, in verse 37, Jesus tells us precisely who the subjects of the kingdom are. Now notice this. He says, verse 37, everyone on the side of truth listens to me. So how can we recognize the subjects of the kingdom? Well, apparently they're going to be quite easy to spot. Because in a world of lies and half-truth, the people who belong to the kingdom are those who listen to Jesus and who do what he says. Now, at this point, I need to remind us that in the Bible, listening is not a passive activity. There are people who think that listening to a sermon is rather like having the radio on in the background while they're doing the ironing or the cleaning on Saturday morning. It's very soothing, uh, but if you ask them afterwards what they were listening to, they wouldn't have a clue. But John 18 is saying that Jesus Christ has come into the world with truth from God. And if we want a place in his kingdom, we've got to listen to him carefully and obediently. But when Jesus talks about truth, what exactly does he mean? I mean, clearly Jesus is not talking about academic truth. The kingdom of Christ is not reserved for intellectuals. No, the truth that Jesus is talking about, and listen to this carefully, is learning where we came from and why we're here. It's discovering who we are and where we're going. It's about knowing who's in charge and what the future holds. In other words, when Jesus talks about truth, he's talking about reality. You see, these are questions that every single human being who has ever lived has asked at some time or other, or will ask at some point in the future. They might not put it in quite the same words, but it's in the soul of every human being to wrestle with these issues. And here, Jesus says, if you want the answers to these questions, if you want the answers to the deepest concerns of your heart, listen to me. Now that's an amazing claim, but it's also a personal challenge. I find this very interesting because at the beginning of this interview, Pilate thought he was the judge. He thought he was in control. He thought he was asking the questions. But when Pilate asks Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Notice that Jesus turns the question round. And in verse 34, he says to Pilate, is that your own idea? And what Jesus is really asking is, well, Pilate, what do you think? 
And like so many people, Pilate is discovering that when we begin to investigate Jesus, he starts to investigate us. Have you found that? I know I have. And now that Jesus has explained who he is and revealed that his mission is to testify to the truth, Pilate discovers he's actually being challenged by Jesus. Because effectively Jesus is saying, Pilate, do you want to know the truth? But then, of course, Pilate responds, doesn't he, with his famous question in verse 38. What is truth? I mean, that sounds so up-to-date, doesn't it? He might have said it yesterday. It's in every dictionary of quotations, and it's the question that nearly all of us have asked at some time or other. And uh, when children and teenagers ask their parents this question, in far too many cases, the parents can't give an answer. Because, you see, our generation has been taught to believe that there is no such thing as absolute truth. But, of course, that's a lie. And the bigger lie behind it is the idea that this is a new discovery that we've made because of progress in human thought. We're so much more sophisticated. Actually, it's not new at all. Listen to what Bishop J.C. Ryle had to say about this. Uh, Here he is, writing more than 100 years ago, and this was his comment on Pilate's famous question. It'll appear on the screen. I hope, yes. Okay, 100 years ago, J.C. Ryle. Is it really true that truth cannot be discovered? Nothing of the kind. God never left any honest, diligent inquirer without light and guidance. Pride is one reason why many cannot discover the truth. They do not humbly go down on their knees and earnestly ask God to teach them. Laziness is another reason. They do not honestly take pains and search the scriptures. The followers of unhappy Pilate, as a rule, do not deal fairly and honestly with their consciences. Their favorite question, what is truth, is nothing better than a pretense and an excuse. The words of Solomon will be found true as long as the world stands. If you call out for insight and cry aloud for understanding, and if you look for it as for silver and search for it as for hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Proverbs 2. So that's a relief. There is such a thing as truth after all. And Jesus said to Pilate, as he says to you and I this morning, if you want to know the truth about life's most important questions, listen to me. So that is the personal challenge Jesus puts before you and I today. But there is one final thing we need to learn in the passage, and I've called this a fatal compromise, verses 38 to 40. A fatal compromise. 
Now, if you've never responded to Jesus' challenge before, I want to urge you to do it today. But whatever you decide to do, please do not follow Pilate's example. In verse 38, Pilate announces to the Jews, I find no basis for a charge against him. And then immediately he says, but it is your custom, dot, dot, dot. You see, Pilate is a politician. He's actually convinced in his own mind that Jesus does not deserve to die. And actually, he says as much on two further occasions, so three times in total. But instead of acting on his convictions, he tries to compromise. Pilate tries his absolute hardest to sit on the fence. The problem, of course, is there is no fence. There is no comfortable middle ground. So, as we close, come with me to chapter 19 and verse 6. Chapter 19, verse 6. At this point, uh, Pilate has had Jesus flogged and a, a crown of thorns rammed down on his head. And he brings Jesus out before the crowd. Verse 6. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw Jesus... They shouted, crucify, crucify. But Pilate answered, you take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jews insisted, we have a law, and according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid and he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus. Now notice this. But Jesus gave him no answer. You see, Pilate's problem is not what is truth. It's not that. Pilate's problem is acting on it. He can't quite bring himself to do the right thing. And that's because, dear friends, there is always a cost to following the truth. If you haven't discovered that yet, you surely will. But the lesson that we learn from Pilate is there comes a time when the opportunities to follow the truth might run out. You see, if you refuse to act on the truth you've already got, you might never get another chance. For 2,000 years, Christians in churches around the world have stood up to declare their faith in the words of the Apostles' Creed. We just did that today, didn't we? We said, Jesus Christ was crucified under Pontius Pilate. Now, when we say that, we're reminding ourselves that in the end, Pilate was an enemy of Christ. It's a historical fact Jesus was crucified on the orders of Pontius Pilate. And you see, Pilate is a warning to you and me. Because in his mind, he was actually for Jesus, not against him. But he didn't act on what he knew. 
And in the end, he handed Jesus over to be crucified. And historical sources outside the Bible tell us that later, Pilate committed suicide in France. So Pilate, you see, is a tragic example, and I think a terrible warning of how a person can reject Jesus without actually saying no. May you and I not make the same mistake. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we praise you that Jesus came into the world to testify to the truth that answers all of life's ultimate questions. We ask that you would make each one of us an obedient listener. Especially we pray for anyone here this morning who's been sitting on the fence, that you would give them grace to heed the warning from Pilate before it is too late. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.